Well, good morning, friends. Uh, my name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, be honest with me, how are you doing today? Right, uh, it's spring break, and there are a number of people who have left to go to warmer climates. But you are those who are blessed to stay here and shovel. How are your backs? Oh man, are you kidding me? I was just getting to the place where I could see oncoming traffic over the mounds of snow at the end of my driveway. And now I, I can't see the oncoming traffic again. Right? We, we need some melting today. Right? Let's go with some melting. Uh, it, it is spring break and we're excited about that, but this is also the beginning of Easter week for us. And I, I'd love to just run through a couple of things that are going on this week that are special. First of all, on Wednesday, there's no Awana or youth programming, but instead there is an all-church prayer meeting that's taking place in the chapel. And so we'd love to have you come and join us for that time of praying together. Uh, second, on Friday, we're going to be having a Good Friday service, and that service is right here. And so come and be a part of that Good Friday service on Friday evening. On Sunday morning, I want to encourage you to do exactly what you did today. Come to the 9 o'clock service. right? Why? Because both services are going to be exactly the same. There's going to be nursery for kids two and under. There's going to be a family room. We're going to sing the same songs. We're going to hear the same message. We're going to have baptisms now at both services because of the numbers of people that signed up. we got to split it between the two services. But the 9 o'clock service is going to have something unique, and that is space for people to sit. And so come on back to the 9 o'clock next week. Uh, you'll be glad you did. You won't have to sit on someone's lap. Uh, we, we are in Romans Road. I'd encourage you to open up to our passage today, which is Romans chapter 11. All right, so turn with me to Romans chapter 11. If you signed up for the church's devotional texting plan over the course of the week, uh, then this morning you received some devotionals that called your attention towards the fact that we are celebrating the triumphal entry. The church of Jesus Christ celebrates today the triumphal entry of Jesus. What was the triumphal entry of Jesus? It was that time 2,000 years ago when large crowds of Israelites gathered in order to shout their praises to Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. Imagine what that was like to be a part of thousands of people who gathered together to shout to Jesus, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. What a day. But we look back and it is very difficult for us to think about this crowd that gathered 2,000 years ago without thinking about the crowd that gathered just a few days later. A crowd that shouted something very different, that shouted, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, crucify him. Well, what a turn took place in just a few days. And as the Israelites called for Jesus' crucifixion, as they called for his death, God held them responsible. So that when Peter is preaching to groups of Israelites in Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 5, he uses the same line in every one of those sermons, you killed the Christ. And so now, we're in a place where Israel has been set to the side by God 
as the primary tool of working in the world and bringing his kingdom to the world. And instead, God is working through a church filled with Gentiles like you and me in order to bring his message to the world and spread his kingdom here among the world. The fact that Israel has been set to the side and God is working through the church brings a particular question to the critic. And the critic's question is, wait a minute, if God didn't fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham and Abraham's children, what possible reason do you have to believe that he's going to fulfill all of these amazing salvation promises that he's made to you in the book of Romans? How, how can the church trust these great promises of salvation that we've read chapter after chapter in the book of Romans if God has not fulfilled his promises to Israel? Well, we saw in chapter 9, as we were studying chapter 9, that this question is based on a false premise, that God is fulfilling all of his promises to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And chapter 9 said, one thing we need to understand is Abraham's descendants aren't just about DNA, they're about faith. And God is fulfilling some of these promises right now through the church. But chapter 11 is going to say even more than that, God is in the process of fulfilling all of the promises that he made to Israel. He's fulfilling those promises through a remnant of Israel that are a part of the church right now, and he will one day in the future fulfill all of his promises to the Israelites. Let's look at this together and how God will fulfill his promises, beginning with verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? The Israelites are in mind here as his people. Has God rejected Israel? Paul's response, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Has God rejected the Israelites? Paul says, uh, of course not. Look at me. I'm an Israelite, saved through the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, all you need to do is look at me, and you can see how God is currently working among the Israelites, bringing Jews to faith in him through Jesus Christ. We are a faithful remnant that God is using and fulfilling his promises to Israel through. Now he's going to use an illustration from the time of Elijah in order to communicate to people, this has always been the way that God has worked with Israel. There has always been a group of Israelites who were unfaithful and rejected God, and there's always been a group of Israelites who have been faithful to God, and God has always been working through that remnant, that faithful remnant, to bring about His plans and to do His good work. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord! They have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul uses an illustration from 1 Kings 17 through 19 in which wicked Queen Jezebel and the puppet king, wicked King Ahab, are after Elijah. And Elijah challenges them and the prophets of Baal to a fire-starting contest on the top of Mount Carmel. And up there, they erect two different altars. And on those altars go bulls. And the contest goes like this. You call out to Baal, 
Elijah says, I'm going to call out to the Lord God, and whoever answers by fire upon those altars, that is the one true God. Elijah even allows the prophets of Baal to go first, because after all, they have home field advantage here. It was understood that Baal was particularly strong in the high places. He was worshipped in the high places. Well, they're up on on top of a mountain. This, This is Baal's home court. And so Baal gets to go first, and the prophets of Baal, they dance around, and they cut themselves, and they shout out, and nothing is happening. And Elijah begins to point out how useless it is to believe in Baal. And so he taunts them and says, you need to yell louder. Maybe Baal's asleep. No, you need to yell really loud. Maybe Baal is in the bathroom. And after he yells these things at them, they continue and they grow even more fervent and nothing happens. After a while, Elijah has seen enough. And so he calls upon the Israelites to bring pitcher after pitcher of water and dump it over his sacrifice. And once it is completely soaking wet, Elijah prays, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. That all sounds pretty amazing, right? If I made a top 10 list of events in the Bible that I would like to have been there for, this probably goes on that top 10 list. But it doesn't take very long for Elijah to realize that the king and queen are unmoved. As a matter of fact, they send a message to him that their pursuit of putting him to death is only going to be ramped up at this point. And he realizes the king and queen have not repented. They are just going to lead Israel into further disobedience to God and further idolatry. And he gets into this place of depression. And he says, what is the point of any of this? He runs away, and he goes to the mountain of meeting with God, Mount Horeb or or Mount Sinai, where he cries out to God on that mountain and says, I've been very jealous of the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. It's just me left, Lord. Poor, lonely me. Right? What is the Lord's response to this? No, it's not Elijah. God responds and said, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Most of Israel had turned from God. They were faithless. But God says, no, 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 no. I have kept for myself a faithful group within Israel who trust in me. They are a faithful remnant, at least 7,000 men strong. Why is Paul bringing this up? Because he wants the people to understand God has always worked through the faithful within Israel. There's always been this unfaithful cluster within Israel. God has always worked within the remnant of Israel that has been faithful to him. That remnant has been different sizes at different times, but it is always through the faithful of Israel that he works. 
The next verses confirm that is true right now. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But it is by grace. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then Israel failed to obtain when it was seeking, the elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Here we have quotes from Isaiah and from David on different sides of Elijah to say, yep, this is always the way it has worked. There's always been a group of hard-hearted Israelites that I do not work through and a group of faith-filled Israelites who are my remnant that I do work through. It has always been the case. Paul says it is the case right now. Just as in the days of Elijah, God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham's offspring, to Israel, through a faithful remnant. They, They aren't saved, you'll notice in these verses, through their works. They're not saved by doing enough of the law. If they were, if they sought salvation through their own works, then they would still be those whose eyes don't see, whose ears don't hear, whose backs are bent. But God, through His grace, has saved them and produced this remnant. Today, we see God's grace poured out on on congregations like Sar Shalom or Seed of Abraham who met yesterday in order to praise God through their Messiah Jesus. They are a part of God's church, Jewish believers worshiping their Messiah. They are the modern equivalent of the 7,000, the faithful remnant who are worshiping God through Jesus Christ. Is God done with Israel? No way. He is working through a remnant right now, as he always has, a faithful remnant who have come through Jesus Christ to him. Now, the fact that a majority of Israel is rejecting the Messiah right now is what God is using in order to bring Gentiles into his kingdom so that we can be a part of what God is doing. Look at the next verses. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ has meant that God's primary operating tool in order to bring His kingdom to the world is... The church, filled with many Gentiles. What a blessing Gentiles have received through this. But as blessed as we are right now to be a part of this church, there is a far greater blessing that we will get to witness one day when Israel in mass turns to Jesus Christ as their Messiah and Savior and is saved by the Lord. Our inclusion is meant to stir something within the people of Israel. It's meant to stir something in them so that they will come to Jesus as their Messiah. 
Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save of them for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. God is making us, Gentiles, his children out of love and grace. And he is also making us, his children, in order to stir something within his people of Israel so that they will see what is going on in us and desire that for themselves. So that they will see the work of God within the church and desire that for themselves and say, I want to come to the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son. I want the living work of the Holy Spirit within me. We are meant to be the sweet aroma of God's work within the church in a way that stirs something within the people of Israel and draws them to Jesus as their Messiah. That, that is God's design for us. It's a little bit like um, if you lived in a small town. And in that small town, everybody had a favorite restaurant, right? One restaurant that was everyone's favorite in that town. It wasn't a great restaurant, but it was everyone's favorite. And you bought that restaurant. And you shut it down. And you opened your own restaurant right there in that space. How excited would the people of that town be to try your restaurant? Not that excited. You just shut down their favorite restaurant. They've been going there for years. They love that restaurant, and you just shut it down. And so they'd be relatively uninterested to try your new restaurant that took its place. But then, townspeople begin to wander by the restaurant. And when they look through the window, they see a family eating there, and the family seems to really be enjoying their experience. And, and as they look through the window, they see the food, and the food looks delicious. And then they wander by the door. Oh, and the smells that are wafting out of that doorway, they smell divine. And then they look at the menu posted next to the door, and the prices are the best they've ever seen. And pretty soon... Even though their favorite restaurant has been replaced, they're pretty interested in coming in and eating at the restaurant. They've been drawn to that restaurant. And that's God's design for you and me here in the church. We are the aroma of Christ meant to stir something within the people of Israel so that they say, I want what they have. I want relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. As I look at what is going on within the church, wow, it looks like life with Christ is good. Boy, the, the aroma of Christ smells good. Wow, it looks like life with Christ is delicious. So God has designed that the work of Christ in us stirs something within the Jewish people. Now, as a corollary to the fact that we are meant to stir things within the people of Israel so that they will come to Christ, we should never be arrogant about being chosen. Right? There should never be a time where we're like, yeah, Israel, psh, they're out, I'm in, <laughs> I'm amazing. 
I, re- I remember uh, when I was growing up, I was the oldest grandkid on my mom's side of the family. And there came a day where as the oldest grandkid on that side, I got to make the move from the kid's table to the adult table. Right, now, I handled that move with a tremendous amount of humility and maturity on the outside. Inside, I was filled with pride and comparison. I thought, oh, these poor suckers, my sister, my cousins, stuck at that card table. They will never know what it's like to eat off of grandma's china. They'll never know what it's like to participate in adult conversation. Stuck at that card table in another room. I am here. They are here. Right? That, that attitude that I had about getting to move to the adult table, that should never be our attitude about being the people that God is choosing to use right now as his primary tool upon the earth. We should never look at Israel and say, you're down here and we're up here. Paul says, because everything that you have is based on the foundations that were given to them. Uh, They're the root. You guys are just the branches. Paul's going to use an analogy now about a tree. And those who tended trees in Israel would sometimes take branches from one kind of tree and they would graft it into the root of another kind of tree so that those branches could live and flourish from the life given from that root. And Paul's going to use that illustration about us and Israel. But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. We are saved because of the Jewish line that led to the Jewish Messiah, because of the the promises that God made to a people. Yes, we have been grafted in, but ultimately, they're the root. So don't be arrogant just because God happens to have them on hold right now and us on the line. Don't be arrogant. Don't be prideful. The next verse, Paul says, yeah, yeah, it's easy to be prideful in this situation. Then he will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Response, this is true. They were broken off because of the unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note that the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Don't get arrogant and proud and fail to have faith in Jesus. Right? Faith in Jesus leads to lives of humility and, and service. Lives that put others first. You need to have that faith in Jesus. Don't fall into the lives of, of selfishness and arrogance and pride. Or you will be cut off. He says that, The Israelites were cut off because they lacked faith. Do you think if you lack faith, you won't be cut off? No, of of course you will. He says, so, so faith is the key here, people. Believe 
in Jesus. If the Israelites place their faith in Jesus, they'll be grafted right back in because it's about faith in Him. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what He says here. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from, uh, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? If you get to start to become prideful because you're a part of God's family, because you're a part of God's kingdom. Please remember that it isn't in any way because you are worthy. It isn't in any way because you've earned it. It is entirely because of God's great grace. And in God's great grace, if those who are a part of Israel trust in Jesus, they'll be grafted right back in, and it'll be easier because they're a part of the natural root. They're they're not the wild branches like we are. It'll be easier to graft them back in. In fact... The final part of this passage says that is precisely what's going to happen. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A hardening has come upon a majority of Israel. A majority remain in unbelief for now, but that won't always be the case. That will not always be the case. It is the case until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. How many is that? When is that? Only the Lord knows. But when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the Lord is going to push that blinking button that has Israel on hold. And once again, they are going to be on the line as his primary kingdom tool on the earth as massive numbers of Israelites are saved through the work of Jesus Christ. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and they will be my and they and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When the full number of the Gentiles are saved, Israel as a whole will turn to Jesus as their Messiah, right? They are not all saved through some other means. Salvation only comes through the work of Jesus Christ. And Israel will turn in mass to Jesus as their Messiah, their deliverer, who will come and fulfill every promise that has been made to Israel. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Right now, the people of Israel are persecuting the church, as Paul writes this. They're enemies for the sake of the gospel. They're against the gospel. But then he goes on, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Right now, they're enemies of the gospel, but that won't always be true because God has made promises to this people. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. So God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God made promises to Abraham and to Israel, and his calling is 
irrevocable, this passage says. One day Israel in mass will turn to Jesus as their Lord, and Jesus will rule over that nation in his millennial kingdom. What a time it will be as God's people of Israel repent in mass and turn to Jesus as their king. Paul says here, their disobedience led to our mercy. Our mercy now leads to their returning into mercy. Right? Remember, he says, you're the sweet aroma of Christ. And he is stirring something in Israel through what God is doing in you. And so God's mercy towards us leads them back to a place of mercy. And we are all in need of mercy, as this last verse says, because God has consigned or, or he has uh, declared judgment on. He has ruled that all of us are disobedient. Right? We have all been ruled as disobedient. We have all been put into the category as disobedient, Jew and Gentile alike. And the only way we can be saved is through God's great mercy. God's great mercy. Is God unfaithful? as the critic charges, because he's done with Israel? No. Not only is God currently fulfilling his promises to Abraham through the church, we also see in, in Romans chapter 11, God is fulfilling his promises to Israel through a faithful remnant of Jews who are a part of the church right now and will ultimately fulfill every promise he has made to Israel when Israelites as a whole come to Jesus as their Messiah and he rules over them. As we see God's faithfulness to his promises to Israel, we want to bask in the fact that we know God will be faithful to every promise he has made to us. As we see his commitment to faithfulness, it is a reminder he'll be faithful to every promise that he's made to us. If you have believed and confessed that Jesus is Lord over the world and Lord over you, that he is the risen king, will you be saved? Yes, God is faithful to that promise. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, will you be justified so that Jesus takes on your sin and punishment and your righteousness is credited to your account before God? Yes, God promises that in Romans chapter 4 and 5. If, if God's Spirit comes to dwell within you, can you count on the promise that as you submit yourself to God, He will grow Christ's likeness in you? Yes, the promise that He made in Romans 6 and 7 is true, and you can count on it. Can you trust in the promise that God has made that He will make all things, including you, new, and that you'll be like Christ and dwell with Him forever? Yes, that promise we see in Romans chapter 8 is absolutely true. Because God is faithful to his promises. You can count on him. He is faithful. This chapter ends with a benediction. Uh, three verses of praise to God. And they're also our theme verses for this uh, third part of the Romans Road series. They particularly focus on how much greater God is than we are. How much greater his plans are than we can understand. Right, look at these with me. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Our God is greater than we can comprehend. He is astounding in his plans beyond our imaginations. I'd like to invite us now to just to bow our heads and take a few moments to praise him for who he is and his greatness. Take a moment to, to praise God that he chooses paths of mercy and hardening while at the same time we make choices for which we're fully responsible. Praise God for how he does this in ways that are beyond our understanding. Praise God that he has set Israel to the side while at the same time fulfilling all of his promises to Israel. Praise God for his incomprehensible ability to guide and direct history to show his amazing mercy and judgment on sin. Praise God for his ability to show us love in a way that brings all glory to him. Worship your God who is beyond what we can understand. What I do understand according to this passage is that our God is faithful to his promises. And every time we come to the Lord's table, we celebrate that faithfulness of our God to his promises, that he promised that he would send a savior, that he promised that he would send God in the flesh, and that he is faithful to those promises. And we celebrate that what Jesus has done on our behalf as we take the bread and the cup. If you're a follower of Jesus, we want you to take these elements with us. You don't need to be a member of Friendship Church. You simply need to be someone who knows Jesus. Make your heart right now before the Lord as we take these elements. Spend a few moments getting your, your heart and your mind right before the Lord. As is always the case, uh, we're going to stand to sing a song in a moment, and when you're ready, you can make your way to one of the tables in the four corners of the room and bring the bread and the cup back to your seat, and we will take those elements together as we celebrate what Jesus has done. Would you stand with me and let's sing praise to our Lord together?